to tell you a story. It's a story about six people who died violently in Germany in 1922. It's a story about an investigation that went on for decades, but never identified the perpetrator. It's a story that has become a legend. I want you to come with me into history, into the long, cold dark. This is Long Cold Dark, the story of the murders at Hinterkaifeck. In this episode, we'll be looking at some of the many suspects who were investigated in 1922 and beyond. It's important to note that despite the depth of the investigation, no one was ever charged with the murders. Everything you're about to hear is based on the surviving case files, and it's as accurate as I can make it. Photos of some of the suspects are in the show notes. We'll start with Carl Gabriel Jr. In the aftermath of the murders, rumors spread that Carl Gabriel, Victoria's husband, had not in fact died in World War I. He returned to Log under a fake name. Upon finding that his wife had a son who could not possibly be his, Carl went mad with jealousy and slaughtered the entire family. Police took this theory seriously enough that Ludwig Meisel, the sergeant major of the Schrobenhausen police, wrote to the Munich police force requesting assistance in determining whether Gabriel had actually died in World War I. According to Munich's war records, Gabriel did in fact die in France on December 12, 1914. This was confirmed by members of his regiment, who saw his body. The motive behind this theory is simple. It's the revenge of a cheated husband. Carl Gabriel Jr. would have inherited Hinterkaifeck from Victoria had he survived her. However, if he had in fact returned, Carl's family would have had no reason to hide that fact. So many young men died in the war that the return of one of them would have been cause for celebration. And in a small community, I find it difficult to believe that the family could have hidden Carl's return for long, even if they had some reason to do so. Carl Gabriel Jr. as a suspect is titillating. It's a fascinating premise for horror fiction, but it just doesn't stand up to logic. Anton Beekler was one of the men whom Kresens Rager, the former maid at Hinterkaifeck, named in her 1922 interrogation. Beekler had been pursuing Rager. He was coming to her bedroom window at night, and this frightened her so badly that he, she left her job in 1921. Rager's suspicion was enough for police to arrest Beekler in May of 1922. He admitted that he had been interested in Rager, and he claimed that she reciprocated his feelings. I admit that I came to see her at the window of her room several times at night. I was admitted once. I broke off the relationship with her because I saw her sitting in Schrobenhausen with a man in the pub. Rager denied that she was ever in a relationship with Bickler. In the same statement, she claimed that part of her reluctance to engage with Bickler was his reputation for theft. 
The Gruber family had advised her that Bickler was a known chicken thief. Suspicion against Bickler was particularly strong initially because he and his brother Carl had done some seasonal work at Hinterkaifeck. They had helped with the threshing and the potato harvests, and they apparently made disparaging remarks about the food that the farm laborers were offered while they were employed by the Grubers. Carl was also a known thief of livestock and farm produce. He admitted to a number of small thefts in the area, but denied any involvement in the murders. Riger claimed that the Gruber's dog knew the Bicklers, and wouldn't have raised the alarm if they were on the property. Anton Bickler denied that the dog was friendly to him. He claimed that he had no animosity toward the Grubers, and that he had no knowledge of the murders until he read about them in the newspaper. Anton Bickler's boss, and a pub owner and waitress in Athenburg, were able to confirm Anton's alibi. He had been at work on March 31st and April 1st. He visited the pub during the evening that the murder is supposed to have happened. Carl Bickler's employer, Michael Huber, provided him an alibi for the murders. During the course of his interrogation, Carl did confess to those local thefts, and he was held for those crimes. Anton Bickler was released, and he makes no further appearance in the Hinterkaifeck records. In 1952, Crescens Rager accused another pair of brothers, Joseph and Andreas Thaler, of the murders. The story she told was very similar to the story she told about the Bickler brothers. According to Riger, Joseph and Andreas Thaler came to her window at night, and in addition to asking her to let him in, Thaler made suggestive remarks about Victoria. He asked about the location of money in the farmhouse. Riger said that she spoke to Thaler through the window, but refused to let him into the house. During the conversation, she heard noises outside the window that sounded like another person. I asked Thaler who was with him. He said no one was there. When I told him I could hear the rustling of the leaves as if someone were walking in them, he said that I was dreaming. The conversation went on for about half an hour before Thaler left. Riger went into the kitchen to watch him through that window and saw another man with him. She believed that the second man was Thaler's brother, Andreas. When she reported the incident to Victoria, Riger recalled, she told me at the time that I should never open the door to the Thalers. I replied that I wouldn't stay on the farm anymore because it was getting so frightening. Victoria didn't want to know anything about my departure. It became known to me that the Thaler brothers had been found in the machine shed at night by Gruber a year earlier. At that time, old Gruber shot at them with an infantry rifle. I heard the shot, but I was not told the cause of the shot, so I wouldn't be frightened while I was pregnant. About three or four weeks after the encounter at the bedroom window, I went away against the will of Victoria. After me, the farmers had no servants until the day before the murder. The story is remarkably similar to the story Riger told about Anton Bickler in 1922. With more than 30 years between statements, it's possible that she conflated one pair of farmhand brothers with another. However, local rumor also linked the Thalers to the crime, although those links are tenuous, and they seem to come from tavern gossip, rather than concrete fact. While the Thaler brothers had a reputation for theft and for generally living a dissolute life, no evidence could be found linking them to the murders. Throughout the investigation, Lorenz Schlittenbauer remained the prime suspect. He had a troubled history with the Gruber family, 
including the paternity dispute over Joseph, and his aborted attempts to marry Victoria, during which at least one physical confrontation occurred. Andreas ran Schlittenbauer off the Hinterkaifeck property with a scythe. We know that he was responsible for at least one of the incest complaints filed against Andreas, but he retracted his accusations at Victoria's request. Schlittenbauer's position as one of the men who discovered the Gruber's bodies made him a particular target of police interest and local gossip. He moved at least two of the bodies during the discovery process, and he seemed to have suspiciously easy access to the Hinterkaifeck house. Schlittenbauer also provided what now read like panic stories about the pickaxe in the Hinterkaifeck stable, trying to explain why his pickaxe was on the Gruber's farm. Schlittenbauer is also the main source of many of the worst descriptions of the Gruber family. Schlittenbauer's reaction to the crime scene, his apparently calm demeanor during such a gruesome discovery, raised the suspicions of his neighbors. Schlittenbauer handled the bodies in the stable confidently, without flinching or becoming frightened. During his interrogation in 1931, Schlittenbauer was asked about his emotional reaction to finding the bodies of his former lover, her family, and possibly his son. He answered, I was so excited that I, I didn't think anything anymore, because I assumed that my boy must be starving. Even if it would not have been my own child, I felt sorry for the child and wanted to see him immediately. In the excitement I found myself, I would have taken on anyone who stood in my way. Schlittenbauer moved the bodies in the stables against the advice of the other searchers, which of course aroused their suspicions. Jacob Siegel noted that Michael Pohl and I told Schlittenbauer that he should leave the corpses as they are. Schlittenbauer replied that he should look at them carefully. Pohl believed, because of his behavior at the crime scene, that he himself killed the people at Hinterkaifeck. Schlittenbauer is the source of much of the strange, sensational information surrounding the murders. He's the one who reported that the Gruber's house key had been stolen. He also told investigators about the machine shed break-in, the footprints in the snow leading toward the farm, and the noises Andreas Gruber supposedly heard in the attic of the farmhouse. That there is only the slightest corroborating evidence of these narratives through a very limited number of independent witnesses casts further suspicion on Schlittenbauer. However, by the time of the murders, Schlittenbauer had apparently made peace with the Grubers. He had married another woman and made his farm a success. Certainly, the paternity dispute over Joseph and the thwarted marriage to Victoria could provide motive. But it stretches belief a little bit that a man would wait almost three years to act on homicidal rage. If Schlittenbauer is guilty, there must have been some more recent precipitating event, some stressor, that spurred him to action, and that we don't know about. Jacob Siegel recalled rumors that Schlittenbauer had not been sleeping at home on the nights leading up to the discovery of the bodies. It is striking, he said, that two or three days before the crime was discovered, hay was said to have been stolen from the Schlittenbauer property. For this reason, Schlittenbauer would have hidden in his attic in the evenings in order to possibly surpri surprise a thief. Back then, his children testified that their father was hiding in the hayloft to catch the thief. 
I see this as a pretext and can imagine where Schlittenbauer was during that time. Schlittenbauer, for his part, denied this rumor in 1931. It's not true, he said. I was with my wife. The timing of the supposed hay theft coincides with the timing of Andreas' discovery of the footprints in the snow, his lost house key, and the attempted break-in. Schlittenbauer seems to have enjoyed his notoriety as a suspect. He made at least one dark joke about it. During his 1931 interrogation, he was asked if he had ever described himself as a murderer. Yes, he responded, but only for fun. Once I tore my pants in the pub and I went to a neighbor to have them fixed. I said, so now you've mended the pants of the Hinderkaifeck murderer. I said that because at the time, Xavier Dersch had just called me out as the murderer. In 2007, German police academy students approached the Hinterkaifeck case as a training exercise. They used modern investigative and forensic methods to analyze the remaining evidence. While they did not list their most likely suspect by name, it is clear from the context and detail that they suspected Lorenz Schlittenbauer. Schlittenbauer is not known to have been violent, and he had no criminal record. No one ever reported that he engaged in any sort of violent acts or displayed any behavior that could be interpreted as a tendency toward rage. Even Schlittenbauer's military record is unremarkable. He enlisted in 1895. He was released into reserve service in 1897. At the outbreak of World War I, Schlittenbauer was drafted, but he was dismissed from service in August of 1915 as incapacitated due to gastric catarrh, among other medical complaints. Schlittenbauer earned no commendations, but neither did he earn any disciplinary marks. Schlittenbauer remained at his homestead until his death in 1941. He consistently made himself available to police for interviews, even decades after the murders, and no definitive evidence was ever produced against him. On May 5th of 1952, the Velbild published an interview with Anton Hauber, who was the chaplain of the Church of St. Pancratius in Augsburg. He told reporters that in 1941, he had heard the deathbed confession of Crescentia Gump Meyer, who claimed that her brothers, Anton and Adolf Gump, were the Hinterkaifeck murderers. She struggled hard with this confession. I sat with her for three hours. She asked me to report it to the police, but I couldn't make up my mind. A priest should be silent. That is my point of view. Do you understand? I don't need to tell anyone. No one can order me to speak. Not even my spiritual superiors. No, I'm silent. It's been so long. You should let it rest. By the time this information came out, Adolf Gump was dead. He died in 1944. Anton Gump was provisionally arrested on May 2nd, 1952. In addition to, to the deathbed confession, the arrest warrant lists as probable cause the fact that Anton lived in Ingolstadt, but could not verify his location during the critical period of March 31st through April 4th, 1922. Adolf was apparently an itinerant basket maker, whose girlfriend at the time, Magdalena Schindler, claimed that she traveled with him to Weidhofen in 1922, and that Adolf went back alone later. 
Crescencia and Adolf's sister, Florentine, was interviewed on August 8, 1952. She told police that Crescencia had a long-standing grudge against most of her family and was therefore an unreliable witness. Family animosity arose during and after the death of the Gump patriarch, Anton Sr. In Anton Sr.'s final days, Crescencia cared for him until he was so ill that he required hospitalization. During that time, Crescencia did not allow her siblings to visit their father and was angry when Florentine visited him at the hospital. In the wake of Anton Sr.'s death, Crescencia argued with Anton Jr. The result was that Crescencia cut off contact with her family completely. Florentine was hurt and baffled by Crescencia's attitude, and she believed that her deathbed statement was an act of revenge, one final lashing out against the siblings she hated. Anton Gump was released on May 29th. The case against him was dropped in February of 1954 due to lack of evidence. No connection to Hinterkaifeck could be proven. He died in Ingolstadt in 1960. Andreas and Karl Schreier were day laborers from Schrobenhausen who were working as woodcutters in the Weidhofen area during the time of the murders. According to a brief newspaper article from August 4, 1922, Andreas and Karl drove past Hinterkaifeck every day so they would know the conditions there exactly. The article claimed that Andreas and Karl were unable to hide the traces of their crime from their mother, who told the story to a neighbor and finally to the local police. Andreas was arrested and Karl fled. According to the anonymous reporter, Karl Schreier will soon also be brought to justice, and as he will hardly be able to find shelter and help anywhere. The perpetrator has confessed. This report was overly optimistic. Andreas Schreier was released on January 19, 1923 for lack of evidence. His brother Carl was never apprehended, and no evidence has ever surfaced which would tie either man to the murders. Joseph Bartle was the son of a master butcher from Geisenfeld, who served in the German infantry during the Great War. Bartle suffered a severe bullet wound to his left hand in 1918. War records indicate that he was hospitalized, but not discharged from military service until 1919. After his discharge, Bartle worked as a baker. Bartle had no apparent connection to Hinterkaifeck or the Grubers. Police had arrested several men who were known to have such connections, but as nothing against them could ever be proven, they were all released, and eventually police began to focus their efforts on identifying a stranger, someone who came from outside the immediate community. Public prosecutor Pilemeyer wrote in 1926 that the perpetrators are likely to be found in the circles of wandering traders, peddlers or showmen, basket makers, and similar people wandering around in the gypsy manner. This was not an unreasonable focus for an investigation. After the war, many Germans took to the roads, traveling to any place they might find work. Displaced Germans might ask a farmer's permission to forage for mushrooms on his land, or beg for a bed for the night in return for a day's labor. In addition to traveling salespeople and vagrants, small bands of discharged soldiers were gathering in various rural areas. These bands, known as the Freikorps, literally Free or Volunteer Corps, 
had no unifying ethos. Some groups were nominally supporters of the Weimar Republic, while others engaged in assassinations and anti-government violence. In short, Germany was full of highly mobile strangers who might make contact with any number of people during their travels around the country, and any of them might be dangerous. Joseph Bartle came to the attention of police through George Seidel, a person with, quote, many criminal records, a pathological liar. Seidel was imprisoned in Regensburg. During his time there, he told police a number of stories about alleged murderous acts, some of which turned out to be correct, but for the most part, invented. In the course of these stories, Seidel named Joseph Bartle and a number of other men as the Hinterkaifeck murderers. The other men were investigated and dismissed, as no connection to Hinterkaifeck could be found. Despite Seidel's reputation for telling wild stories and making false accusations, police had to chase down every potential lead. Pilemeyer was careful to note in his 1926 report, From time to time reports are received, some anonymously, against some person suspected of murder, namely from prisons. These reports are also checked, although they have little prospect of success from the outset, so that nothing is missed. Pursuing Bartle, despite his accuser's unreliability, was a duty. Pilemeyer reported that Bartle was hospitalized in the Goonsburg Sanatorium at some point after 1919, where he was housed to observe his mental state. He escaped in July of 1921, and he could not be found in 1926. He was suspected of being in southern Bavaria during the time of the murders. A dragnet was set up, which included distributing his photograph and the promise of a reward for his capture. Special attention was paid to the Austrian border. Police believed that Bartle was likely to try to escape Germany. Pilemeyer found the very fact of Bartle's disappearance suspicious. He wrote, Obviously he's got something wrong. Otherwise, he wouldn't make himself so invisible. Bartle was never located, and no evidence connecting him to the murders at Hinterkaifeck has ever surfaced. In 1931, the Schrobenhausen newspaper ran a story recounting the events at Hinterkaifeck and summarizing what was then known about the investigation. The article included a startling story of an uncanny encounter between a man from Weidhofen and a stranger in mid-May of 1927. A man from Weidhofen, who was on his way home late at night on his bike, was stopped by a stranger and asked to get off his bike at shortly after midnight, as he was approaching the entrance to the town on the state road. The stranger asked various questions related to the investigation into the killer at Kaifek. At the end, the stranger shouted, Soon there will be light on the matter. I am the killer of Kaifek. Thereupon, he jumped over the fence of the street and disappeared into the fields toward the forest. The description given by the Weidhofen police of the sinister questioner matched the man who had asked to see the graves of the murdered the day before in the Weidhofen cemetery. Since the nocturnal encounter, there has been no trace of the man and his announcement that light will soon come, come into the matter has not yet come true. The newspaper doesn't name the source of the story, 
Whether it was true and honestly reported to the newspaper by a witness who wished to remain anonymous, or based on rumor or confabulation, is of course impossible to determine. No similar stories were reported elsewhere, and the incident doesn't appear in any of the surviving case files. The stranger stands in for any number of strangers who may have been in Weidhofen in late March of 1922, and who remain strangers a century later. Next time on Long Cold Dark, I'll tell you my theory of the murders. I'm C.S. Frank. Thanks for listening.